computers. This is Intelligent Performance. Welcome to the Intelligent Performance Podcast, where we are fanatical about excellence in human endeavor. And today we welcome Jennifer Geary, a seasoned chief operating officer and author with a rich tapestry of experiences spanning finance, technology, risk, legal, and more. From the bustling corridors of Barclays to the mission-driven hallways of Save the Children UK, Jennifer's journey has been nothing short of extraordinary. During our deep dive today, Jennifer illustrates the nuances of the COO role, pinpointing the warning signs every leader must be vigilant of, and unravelling the contrast between leading in the private sector versus the charitable domain. We venture into an exploration of risk management. We look at what most companies get wrong about managing risk, and we discuss the ever-evolving challenge facing today's chief risk officers. Jennifer also shares her insightful writings on the role of chief people officers, the changing dynamics of workplaces, and the pivotal role of people in shaping organisational futures. This is a real masterclass in cross-sector leadership and provided a profound insight into a COO's multifaceted world. So thank you for tuning in. And without further ado, let's jump into the conversation. Where I'd love to start is you've been a CEO at some pretty prestigious organizations and quite varied companies as well. But what was it about the specific role of a CEO that kind of resonated with you so strongly? Well, hi there. And thank you for having me, first of all. Yeah, I've had the privilege of working as COO in a number of organizations and in two different sectors, at least. And what I love about it is it is a really generalist broad-based problem-solving role. You have so many areas under under you that you have to manage. You've got so many different things to think of, and it's constantly changing as well in response to the environment, in response to what's going on internally, in response to the changing strategy. So it no two COO roles are the same, no two relationships, the CEO are the same, and it's really one that keeps you on your toes, and it's a real mental challenge. For some people, you know, it's often in the background. It can be an unglamorous job, problem solving. You don't always get an awful lot of the attention or the glory. That's not for everybody. But I I, I love the satisfaction of, you know, solving the issues that, that come across the COO's desk. There's a science to it, but there's also art as well. Yeah, no, wonderful. And I, I I can hear real kind of humility in that, not wanting to necessarily be the, the front-facing part of the organization, but just making things happen, solving the problems. So, yeah, I can get that. In your book, or in one of your three books, the How to Be a CEO book, you mentioned warning signs, which I thought was a really interesting. Could you tell us about, and I think you were talking in the context of when you become a CEO of an organization, looking mm. out for certain warning signs, but maybe you could just tell us about what these are and also how you spot them. Yeah. So the reason for putting that in each chapter of my COO book was when you come to a new COO role, you typically have a range of departments that you're responsible for, you know, anything from, you know, six to 10, let's say. And you've got to really quickly understand what's going on in each of them and figure out which ones are doing just fine. You don't need to worry about too much or that maybe you can enhance in time and which mm-hmm. ones might more of your attention over time. And I think that's really critical in the first 100 days or so of the COO role. So what I tried to do was to put together each department for each area. So I count 16 disciplines that the COO can potentially need to cover. Right. And then for each one to, <laughs> to indicate 
what may be indications of just something that, so it can be perhaps a lack of clarity about what the department needs to accomplish. It can be a lack of alignment with the overall strategy, or it can be some problems with execution, whereby for whatever reason, the department is not executing as, as it should do. And of course, it's not exhaustive, but it's kind of an initial, you know, take on if you're seeing some of these things, this might be a sign that you might need to drill into that particular department a little bit more. I do also, by the way, for completeness, talk about um, good to great. So when you have a department that's going really, really well, you can do to actually even enhance that performance some more. Yeah, no, because I I was also thinking, yeah, I guess you could think of it as almost like a pessimistic kind of perspective to look at an organization just looking for warning signs so i like mm-hmm. the fact you counter it with the good to great as well but i guess yeah i mean 16 areas it's a lot isn't it it's a lot to cover in a huge organization potentially so yeah i guess it's time you managing your time and having things to look out for because i guess if things are working well you'd less you need to get less involved i imagine a ceo from the experience I've had of dealing with them, they're very much like having to get involved when things aren't working, sadly. That's when yep. they kind of get, earn their money often. <laughs> so I can understand, yep. but it's helpful to, yeah, to have these things to, to flag up, especially it if you're is, new to the organization. Yeah. It is, it is, it is a problem solving role, you know, right. by definition. Right. And, and that's not to say it's all negative or anything like that, but you're trying to find a way through something to achieve the organization's goal. And, and 16, I mean, that's really why I, why I wrote the book, because nobody can come to their first COO role fully formed. I, I couldn't believe when, you know, when I yeah. looked at my, my first time in role, I had some of the skills needed, but by, by no means all. And I had to dig really deep and research and ask people and, you know, get help from people. And so what, what the book tried to do was to short circuit some of that and equip people with some of the tools they were going to need. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. Made perfect sense. Um- the majority of your CEO experience has been at financial services organizations, including Barclay, Santander, which is two. But mm-hmm. I, you also then had an episode, or a couple of years, I think it was, uh, serving as the CEO Save the Children UK, so a charity. I was really interested to know what maybe differences you noticed doing the same job, CEO role again, but working in the charity sector versus the private sector or kind of, you know, a different industry yep. in financial services. Yeah. So... I was actually, I was chief of staff to the COO at Barclays Wealth, which is an enormous right. job. It had sort of 7,000 people under it and that kind of thing. And then my first COO position was, was in Save the Children. And there were obvious differences. I think what I immediately picked up was, not surprisingly, in the not-for-profit sector, you really have to do more with less. You have to, you have to make every pound go further. You have to be very accountable for how, for what you spend and how you spend it. And you definitely, as a result, have to bootstrap more. You have Mm. to, you have to find ways to get more from your suppliers, to lean on your mission, to invoke goodwill and to bring all of those things to bear in furtherance of the mission. So you have to be very, very creative. And I have so much respect for people in the not-for-profit sector for for all that they do every day uh, with constrained resources. But I think the second thing that I noticed was um, in financial services, you know, by and large, it's a pretty, I'm going to call it an obedient profession. And what I mean by that is, you know, you have a boss, you have a manager, there's, there's a certain degree of command and control. It's, you know, it's highly regulated. And as long as you sort of 
pretty much do what you're told and do it well, you will mm. probably get well remunerated along the way. In contrast, what, what I've picked up in, in the not-for-profit sector is, you know, people people choose to be there and people with, bring their skill sets and probably take a pay cut to be in that sector. Mm. And uh, as a result, they bring a huge amount of expectation and engagement into that role. So they want a say, they want to know why they're doing something, they want to know whether it's the right thing to do, and they will have opinions about those things. And so, you know, just just issuing commands was never going to work in in that context at all. Right. You really have to recruit people to your mission. You have to tell them why. You have to convince them of your good faith and why you believe this is the right thing to do, which mm. was a real adjustment that I had to make very early in, in my time there. Yeah, that's really interesting. What I hear and what you're saying is almost the people in maybe that sector, that they're quite protective. They care about what they're doing so they're quite protective, maybe the organization, especially like someone new coming in. So they want to make sure you are, you know, one of them or like you care as deeply as they do. That, that um, you are protecting the mission, the brand, right. the organization, that you're not going to do anything that would in any way, you know, damage or, or not be in line with, with the values of that organization that comes through really strongly. And, yeah. and you feel that responsibility. I felt that responsibility hugely. Yeah, makes a lot of sense. Interesting. I, well, I was then also interested to ask you about your return to the financial services sector so you went from the save the children then back into financial services but having had that experience you just described did you do did it change you or did you do anything kind of differently in your next ceo role back in financial services i think i think i was changing at the point of seeking out an opportunity to do something different and and i was so blessed that save the children came along and i was so grateful Mm -hmm them for the opportunity and and to get to work with them through a period of strategic change when I could bring some of my strategic and financial and planning skills to help them out. So I was changing and and then yes, absolutely changed me and I learned an awful lot more. I think I took forward a much more educated view about how organizations, all organizations can do Mm -hmm. good. It's not just a matter of kind of, you know, away days doing something nice in the community or whatever. It's much more about how can you bring the unique skills and abilities of your organization to bear to do something good in the world. And yes, I I returned to the commercial sector after that. I had sort of 20 years of experience that I wanted to keep using, you know, Mm. in a way. But since, you know, I joined organizations that always had some aspect of doing good to them. So whether it was helping small and medium business owners get access to finance that they wouldn't otherwise get or working with an organization that had really deep community roots and was doing good in its own community and everything else as well. So yeah, I'm I'm probably forever changed by by what I learned and I try and bring it to bear in all my roles now. Yeah, that's wonderful. Imagine also, as you said earlier, when you went into Save the Children, you just realized, you know, your time was spread more thinly, had less resource to work with, has to be more creative. I imagine going back into, I mean, I'm speculating, but I imagine going back into financial service, where as you said, there's usually quite an abundance of that. There's maybe more money, maybe more people who you can delegate tasks, you more support. Um, I guess you had a, a sense of appreciation, maybe you didn't have before, of having that kind of environment again now. Yeah, although, I mean, I think any of your listeners right now are probably grappling with scarce resources. We're going through a difficult part in in the credit and the investment cycle right now. Valuations in the fintech sector are a fraction of what they were before. Money is scarcer and harder to come by. And so, of course, yes, you know, of course, there are differences in sector, but I think there's also cyclical differences. Times like this are when you really have to dig deep 
get creative, be ruthlessly focused and prioritized on the things that are going to move the needle for your organization. And, and, you know, I, I often say strategy is as much about what you don't do as about what you do. And these times are difficult, but actually they can be quite cathartic for organizations to get back and to be really focused on what their mission is. Yeah. Tell us more about that. That's, that's an interesting point. So tell us more about what you just said there about the, it's more important what you don't do or can be more important what you don't do. Can you give us some examples of what you mean by that? Yeah. Well, I think, um, one of the roles, obviously, the relationship between the COO and the CEO is just a really critical one. And I think sometimes, and this is a generalization, of course, but CEOs are usually there because they're hugely excited and motivated and they want to do as much as possible, as fast mm. as possible. And I think one of the things that you can do is be a very critical friend as as the COO and hold a mirror up to all the different things that the organization is doing that might perhaps be diluting the focus of the organization. So I can think of places I've worked where I inventoried all the different projects that had started and there was 110 of them all going on simultaneously. Right. And, um, you know, the CEO was wondering why everything was taking so long. And I was like, well, here's why we're inching yeah. forward on a hundred things rather than picking six of them and, mm-hmm. and putting all our resources behind those and completing those and moving on to the next. And, you know, if you think that's difficult in a commercial context, imagine doing that in, in a not-for-profit context where literally every yeah. project is having children somewhere in the world. It's incredibly difficult, but you are ultimately more effective if you choose to do less. No, I think the other really critical part of the CEO role I hear and what you just described is actually some CEOs, you know, not through sort of any intention, maybe their part simply how they're held by the rest of the organization might not have people in the organization who will be willing to push back and say, look, we shouldn't be doing this. So actually you there as the CEO, as you said, I think you said critical friend, which is an interesting phrase, mm-hmm. needs to be someone who can say, look, no, we need to stop doing this. This is yeah. a mistake. This is We shouldn't be doing this. But that's a hard conversation to have. And you need to have kind of confidence and be the kind of person who can back it up with, you know, I've, I'm saying this because of X, Y, Z. So yeah. yeah, that must be a tough conversation to have sometimes. Yeah. That would be a conversation that anyone who, for me, is countenancing, and not just a COO, but any sort of senior management role, I would be testing out the appetite of, you know, with the CEO for them to hear things they don't necessarily want to hear. So, you know, it's all great, you know, maybe if you're in a recruitment conversation and everything is sounding fantastic and that kind of thing, but, you know, key question, you know, what's going to happen the first time we disagree, or if I have to bring you news or tell you something that you don't want to hear, how, how's that going to be? And, and I won't be doing it to hold you back or to, you know, to, to stop the organization. I will ultimately be doing it so we can be more effective. And so we can show results along the way. I think those kind of sounding out conversations are really important, actually, if you're looking at a new role. Yeah, absolutely. And that's a nice segue to my next question, actually, I was going to ask you about what you think the most important skill a good CEO has to have maybe, but also maybe what the the best, the most important skill a CEO might need to develop. And maybe you yeah. touch on some of one thing there, but is there anything yeah. else you could talk about? No, I, yeah, no, I, absolutely, absolutely. That, that piece about speaking truth to power and, and being confident mm-hmm. in, your own, in your own view, I think is very important. The other one though, the first word that springs to mind when you ask me that is resilience. So you to be incredibly resilient as a COO, you deal with all sorts of issues. You know, by the time the issues bubble up to you, all the easy answers have been found, right? So, so right. Like you've still <laughs> the tricky stuff to deal with and you've got to be calm in the face of crisis. You've got to be able to, you know, keep a steady hand on the tiller, even when an organization is going through, through choppy waters 
you've got to try and keep your good humor. You've mm. got to keep your personal reserves topped up, you know, whatever gives you energy, whatever makes you feel controlled and balanced. And you've got to keep clear about your mission, even when things come to knock you off course along the way. So resilience. Yeah, it's very good. And how do you, I was going to say, how do you teach resilience or how do you train resilience? I don't know how you could answer that, but yeah, but what, how does one develop resilience? Maybe another way you could phrase it. It is, there's, there's definitely something about time and, and guarding your, your personal time and your thinking time. People often go into their first C-suite position having been a sort of a head of or, or a director of and having yeah. been phenomenally busy in executing the role that they needed to do. And the more senior you get and the, and the more broader the teams you have to do, actually, the more the more thinking time you need. You mm-hmm. need to hand off those execution tasks to other people and you need to give you the best service that you can give the organization is, is being clear in thought about what you do. So, you know, I'm not going to say you know, for every person, resilience will be different, but, you know, keeping yourself healthy, keeping yourself balanced, stopping yourself getting sort of jaded and fatigued and cynical is very important. So whatever those things are that make you balanced are the things that you need to carve out time for. Yeah, no, that's really good. I mean, I was just talking to my sister-in-law who she's the mother of, you know, a three-year-old and a six-month-old. And we're just talking about, you know, how she also is a, you know, a business owner and it's trying to, how do you get the balance when she's exhausted from her kids? And it's, yeah, I hadn't thought of it in the context of resilience, but you're absolutely right. If you don't have that balance, you know, one yeah. thing goes wrong, your health goes wrong, then it's going to affect your work and, and it's affect everything else, yeah. isn't it? So it's, yeah, it's a good point. Yeah. You know, if you're, if you're snappy, you know, snap comment or judgment or whatever, mm-hmm you know, is not in the best interest of the organization and that kind of thing. And, you know, absolutely. And then we have to remember we're all human as well. And we're all dealing, sure. it could be parents, family, you know, whatever's going on in your own life. And we've got to, you know, remember that about, about our colleagues as well and keep that sort of humanity. I definitely became a more human leader when I became a mom mm-hmm. and showed some vulnerability and talked about the fact that I was exhausted and had no sleep the night before and that kind of thing. So humanity and that compassion for others and compassion for yourself are really important. Yeah, no, absolutely. We're kind of talking about performance here in some ways, you could, mm-hmm. you could you could argue. So I've just wanted to ask, you know, this is the intelligent performance podcast. I'm curious to hear what your maybe what your definition of intelligent performance, or maybe phrased another way, what does the term intelligent performance just mean to you when you hear it? Yeah, I think I think it's I think it's I think it's a great name. I think it's a great phrase and you could unpack it in lots of ways. I think whether you are creating a product or crafting a strategy. It is about great design and about consistent, excellent execution over and over again. I always see those two things. So, you know, so in the case of strategy, I I talk about strategic clarity and operational excellence. And I think it's the same if you're manufacturing a product or some software or something like that. Really good design, not skimping on the design and then executing it time and time again. I remember a product owner I worked with and he said it should almost get boring. You know, just just that Mm -hmm. repeated perfect execution, you know, whether you're dropping new software, releasing a new version of your hardware time and time again, until it's just such a well-oiled machine. Yeah, that's great. I like that. You need to get, you need to get bored almost with what you're doing. Then, you know, you were, you've kind of reached the, the in right. In a good level. way, you know, in a, yeah, 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 not a complacent, but just here we go again, you know, regular yeah. code, regular upgrades, all that kind of yeah. thing, adding features, adding functionality time and time again. Yeah. No, I, I I get a lot from that. I, I, I totally understand the, the context, but that's that's great. Um, so we talked about CEO roles. We talked about the, the, you know, a lot of the areas of your CEO book. Another big area that you worked on is risk. And I heard you say something, I think, in 
description of your book around risk. But I wanted to ask you, what do you think is the biggest thing that people get wrong about managing risk in a business? Yeah, I think the greatest misperception about risk and the one that I would love to correct is that it is about stopping people doing things. Right. right? Everybody thinks, or lots of people think about uh, the risk department as a blocker. I'm going to have to get this through the risk department now, and they're going to say no, and they're going to slow me down and that kind of thing. Mm. And uh, and so that, you know, risk is the department of no and, uh, and, and a blocker. And it shouldn't be. It really mm. shouldn't be. Good, proper risk management is about making informed decisions about the risks that an organization does and does not want to take. And it's absolutely fine to take business risks. In fact, no organization would be here if, if it did, if it hadn't take, taken business risks along the right. way. Of course, there are some legal and compliance lines that you don't want to cross. And there are some things that you just absolutely have to have to comply with. But um, a good risk department will be having meaningful conversations with its management, with its leaders, with the departments about like, where do you want to go with this? And, and if you think about different business strategies, I mean, Richard Branson wrote a book early on about Virgin and he called the book, screw it, let's do it, right? Mm. <laughs> That's There's an enterprising entrepreneurial business strategy, like let's do things. You know, Facebook said, let's move fast and break things. There are right. all sorts of strategies and there can be go fast and try things out strategies. So risk is not about stopping that, but it is about informing that and making sure that people are being deliberate and thoughtful in the risks that they do take. Yeah. No, I, I like that. Yeah. I was, I was going to mention the whole move fast and break things that Facebook kind of advocated because it's, I think there's a lot of power in that, but I guess it's just a case of, yeah, I was going to say protecting yourself, but it's, that's almost what you're saying is the, the problem was yeah. too much like we're going to stop you from doing things, but it's, it's just being informed, isn't it? It's doing it in a way that's, you know, not going to get you in trouble, not going to get other people into trouble. And like, uh, also I think guess yeah. maybe managing unintended consequences could be another way of, of talking about it as well. Well, it, it's thinking about what those consequences would be. Yes. So hopefully they're not unintended, right? So right, hopefully you're right. going, okay, this could happen. We could lose this much. There might be this many code errors per month if we move this fast, you know, lose as much in terms of credit losses. But, you know, are we okay with that? And if we are, great. You know, so so the best risk professionals I've worked with are the ones who who help you work within that framework and help you co-create a framework within which to operate. And then Go as fast as you can. Go out. Yeah, that's great. It's almost like having a kind of, I'm thinking of it as like a safety net under the organization, but one that actually works. You know, gotta, if you don't have that, something does happen, yeah. you're in trouble. So why not build that first and, you know, then do whatever you want. So it's great. Okay. Also mentioning about building a risk team. Now, I wasn't sure if that just meant, you know, risk department, but I had a sense it was kind of different. So maybe you could just tell us about what what, what, is, what does it look like to build a risk team or, you know, what's an effective way or what does it effectively look like to build a risk team in a business? Yeah, well, I think obviously it depends. It depends on the context sure. in which you find yourself. You might be starting from zero or you might be inheriting a team. You know, in reality, it's probably going to be messy and imperfect and mm. You have, to, you have to kind of deal with what you have and, and iterate from there. And it's a continual work in progress. But in my books, what I try to do up front is talk about some of the characteristics that that particular role, I think, requires along the way or that I've seen deployed and, and needed in those roles. And none of us is fully formed again. So to try and think about what your particular skill, strengths and weaknesses are, and then to build a team around you that that compensates for that and that, you know, that amplifies the areas where, where you may not have have you know have those skills and so so that composition of your team that balance and thinking about what the organization needs both now and in the future is a really important 
part of building your team. Um, I would also say, I think, for example, if you look at, at risk teams, I think it's evolving very quickly at the moment. There are new skills like data modeling and AI that are going to be increasingly in demand. So it's never it's never a finished product. No, for sure. And it also makes me think about, I, you know, when I think of risk, I often think of a big corporate organization where you've got their own risk department, you know, head of governance, but obviously you've obviously got startups who are very small, maybe mm-hmm. kind of five or yep. less, so maybe just two co-founders sometimes. What's the approach that a, you know, organizations of, you know, that's on the smallest side yep. should take to risk? Because I, I imagine something they should be thinking about, probably don't think about until possibly yep. too late. But yeah, what's your kind of advice to people and that those type of organizations? Yeah, so did that one of the organizations I worked with, I was I was the first person in. I I hired an operational risk manager and a credit risk manager. And between us, we created the 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 whole framework that the organization uh, worked under. So you uh, you know those those early hires are really important and you want people a bit like you who will roll up their sleeves, be generalists, apply themselves to whatever needs to be done at the time. And also I think really good judgment and proportionality. So I was working in a fintech that was part of a larger banking organization, and we had all of their sort of risk policies, but we had to right-size them and make them applicable for an agile startup. So I think that judgment in terms of, you know, still maintaining all of the, both the spirit and and the compliance that needed to be there, but actually giving us a little bit of room to move as well was a really important exercise in judgment. So yeah, those those early hires, those people who are going to be in the trenches with you and their judgment are really important. Interesting. And were those people, were they actually brought in just to manage the risk or were they first hires, but they also had a risk kind of hat on in terms of their role? Yeah, great question, actually. And uh, so those people I talked about were were risk professionals and working in the second line of defense of the organization. But you're right, that was a very small team. And, and, you know, the risk department cannot solely be responsible for risk. So what it's much more about is working with, in this case, this was a fintech, working with product developers working with marketing, working with all the different parts of the organization to make sure that they were aware of the risks that they were potentially running. And and so, you know, why we couldn't just, you know, push code out, you know, to the live environment when we were dealing with financial products, for example, or how we had to be careful about financial promotion and what we said about the product online. So a good risk person or department will be educating the entire rest of the organization so that everybody is managing risk and feeling that ownership. And and one of the things I think that's really important is to put yourself in the in the shoes of your customers. You know, would you would you sell this product to your brother, your wife, your sister, your husband? Do you want a member of your family to have this treatment and, ha- and to have this experience? And I think that's really come forward now recently in consumer duty in mm. the financial services sector because that's exactly what they're trying to do. Yeah, that's such a great question. I never thought of that before because, you know, when I've worked on, you know, client-facing pieces, it, it, it's very impersonal, isn't it? When you actually start to bring in someone you know, friend, family, you're, yeah. wow, it changes the perspective. So I really like that. That's very helpful. The last book you wrote, Jenny, is about, so we talked about CEOs, talked about risk, and we also CPOs, chief people officers, which again is quite a new role. I mean, these only probably came in, I think, in the last 10 years, start to see these kind of roles now. But you know, the workplace of workplace and maybe in quotation marks is, you know, changing so rapidly. Even the role of people in organizations is changing rapidly too, probably faster than any time in history, I'd argue. What would you say is the biggest challenge facing chief people officers now in the current kind of, you know, climate? 
Yeah. And so so just to say as well, um, I personally wrote the COO and Chief Risk Officer books because those right. are the roles that I have held. I co-authored Chief People Officer with a very experienced Chief People Officer. So that to make sure we would have all of the, uh, you know, absolutely have it 100% right. But what I learned in working with her and in co-writing it, yeah. you're absolutely right to say, I mean, think about what we've been through. Think about the pandemic changes in work mm. practices, social change sustainability, like so much has changed about, about the world of work and about the expectations that people bring to the workplace now, like mm. what they want to work. So the key thing I think I took away, it's a role more than anything else about balance, about balancing the needs of the organization now and in the future. So in other words, not just hiring for the job that you need today, but building the skill sets that the organization is going to need for the future balancing the needs of different stakeholders. So investors, shareholders, the board management in terms of what they want to get done. And then, as I say, this very, we've got five generations in the workplace now from what was it X to Z and boomers. There's, trust me, I, I went through and, and each one has its own different characteristics, but obviously, particularly the up and coming, you know, the, you know, the, the younger generations of people in the workplace bring an entirely different set of mm -hmm. expectations for what they want from work. And I think trying to balance all those things and, and again, keep focused, keep prioritized, keep getting things done is one of the key challenges of CPOs today. Yeah. It's quite a task. <laughs> it but, really is. <laughs> yeah. Fantastic. Well, Jenny, thank you so much for this. It's been brilliant. We know we've, I think you've inspired probably a new generation, a next generation of CEOs to come through. I love, you know, your perspective on risk. I think it's really refreshing. And yeah, it'll be really interesting to sort of see how the chief people officer kind of ecosystem develops as well as the world continues to change so yeah fantastic thank you so much for joining us really enjoyed this conversation and you've got these three books out now how to be a chief people's officer how to be coo and how to be a c so i'll link to those in the show notes and yeah is there another book in the pipeline i was curious i hope so so I won't, I won't write any more individually myself, but I am looking, I am partnering with a couple of people on some other C-suite roles. So watch this space. Okay, fantastic. Look forward to that. That's great. Jenny, thanks for your time. Really good to speak to you. Great to be here. Thank you. Thank you.